good? All right. Good morning again. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, as we come to this rather tricky passage in, in Genesis, there's some topics here that are a little hard to understand and and yet there's a, a main theme flowing through this this whole passage. I pray this morning that that we would cast our eyes, focus our attention on this this main theme of the wickedness of man. I pray that my words would be your words this morning and that would you, you would speak to each one of our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing. Can I have a clicker, Matt, please? <laughs> we're continuing our series through Genesis. And I'll adjust that. We're continuing our series through Genesis. We come to Genesis chapter 6. For some of you this morning, it might be a bit of a tricky passage to understand. I know for me, preparing my message through the week, it was a hard passage to, to prepare on. Jody, my wife, dislikes watching James Bond movies. She says that you spend an hour and a half, sometimes more, of watching a movie where there's no definitive ending. And of course, we understand that that's so that there can be more James Bond movies, but, but she doesn't like that fact, that there's no, no ending. I like them because, you know, there's car chases and there's shooting and there's action and espionage and all that sort of stuff. So for some of you this morning, this passage might seem like a James Bond movie. There's no definitive answer there. Others, it might be exciting because there's some, you know, interesting topics there, the Nephilim and, and those sort of things. These verses are the precursor to um, the judgment of God through the flood. And there's a couple of things that we need to address in order to be able to understand this passage. But they're not the main point of the passage, okay? But they can't be left alone either. The number one not main point of this passage is that, or the number one not problem of this passage is that the fact that man has multiplied on the earth. That's not the, not the problem because God told them to do exactly that in Genesis chapter 1. He blessed them and said, go and multiply. So this is not the problem. The not problem number two is that this passage mentions the Nephilim. On Thursday night, we spent a long time discussing this in our home group of who are the Nephilim. And I think we came to the ending such as a James Bond movie. We don't know. There's, there's a couple of groups of, of thought around the Nephilim, that they were giants or fallen angels or, or that they were, were just simply demonised rulers of the earth. And you can, you can kind of see that, that there's a, a, 
an understanding there that, that these would be the offspring of fallen angels. But if we dig a little bit deeper, we can see that there's, there's pagan thought around where, where this was written at the time. And you can see that, that those pagan thoughts kind of just, they, they would believe that, that those who ruled over them were conceived in a supernatural kind of way. And because of the way that they ruled, that is like through violence and that sort of thing, killing anyone who would try and rise up against them, they were seen as, as somewhat demigods. You can see that in Greek mythology, can't you? One commentator says that this passage refutes pagan beliefs by, by declaring the truth. The sons of God were not divine. They were not fallen angels. They were simply demon-controlled men or possibly demon-controlled men. Their marrying many women as, as they chose was, was just to satisfy their basic instincts. They were just another lower order of creature. Though powerful and demon-influenced, the children of these marriages, despite pagan ideas, were not God-kings. Though heroes and men of renown, they were flesh, and they died in due course like all members of the human race. And when God judges the world as he was about to, no giant, no deity, no human has any power against him. God simply allots one's days and brings his end. There's another thought that they, they could have been the, the two lines of Cain and Seth. The sons of God refer to the, the godly or chosen line of, of Seth and the, the daughters of men refer to the, the ungodly or the sinful line of Cain. And the two intermarried and, and caused wickedness to increase across the earth. But there's not really a, a whole lot of evidence in the text because of this. Why would our writer of Genesis change his terminology here in Genesis 6 as to what he's called mankind prior to this? I waffle on. This is not the main point again. Number three of the not main point of this of this passage is that that these four verse four, first four verses refer to to God removing His Spirit from mankind because He is flesh, as you see in verse three. You see, prior to this, men were living for nearly a thousand years, and they were having many sons and daughters. I'm sure even Cain's descendants were receiving the same kind of blessing as Seth's line. But now God says that his spirit, he was not going to contend with, with mankind, that he was going to remove his spirit from them, and that their days would be limited to 120 years. Again, not the main point of the passage. These main four, the main point of these first four and five verses is that wickedness, violence and evil had gotten to such a point that, that mankind were only thinking about evil all the time. 
Every intention of their hearts was evil. Everything that man, woman or child did or thought was contrary to what God had created them for. Wickedness was rampant and and it was not what God had created them for. Murder was rampant and it was not what God had created them for. Unhealthy sexual relationships were, were rampant. Marriage had lost its specialness, its uniqueness. And it was not what God had created them for. Can you see the same sort of wording there in, in verse 2? As what we saw a couple of weeks ago in Genesis chapter 3. The wording is that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Genesis 3, 6 says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she took of its fruit and ate. Sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3 and we see the, the reoccurring theme here. The lines between who determines what is good and who is good has been blurred over and over again until we have a point where there's rife sexual immorality. Men and women are choosing to do whatever they please and they've completely removed God out of the picture altogether. The main point of these verses is that wickedness and the sin of mankind had gotten to a point where it grieved God to his heart. He even regretted making mankind. He even regretted creating them in in the first place. This picture that I'm painting of, of wickedness and evil and rampant sin, do you think there's any resemblance in our world today? that man only think of themselves. There's all kind of wickedness in in the world today that that marriage is under attack, that men and women are obsessed with themselves, that they don't even consider the, the ramifications of their own sin. As we read here, the situation of the earth grieves God to his heart. How deep-rooted had this sin got? How bad had it got? God grieves over the earth. He regrets creating mankind. This is something that I made. I didn't create it from nothing like God did. I created it mostly from Bunnings material and that sort of thing. It's a, a planter box and you can't see it in the picture but at the bottom there there's, there's water. And the idea is it's an environmental piece of magnific- magnificence. <laughs> I'm, I'm proud of my work, what can I say? <laughs> So the idea is that the water in the bottom 
gets pumped up to the top and you can see, you can just see at the top right hand corner a little dripper just there. So the water gets pumped up to the top and it drips down through the plants and through the minerals that are in the, in the plants, in the planter box. The idea is that, that as that comes through, it filters the water but also waters the plants, obviously. In the bottom you can also see, oh well, no you can't see, but you know that there is fish. There's fish living in there. And so the, the two interact with each other. The fish fertilise the plants, the plants f- filter the water and it's just a, a wonderful, nice, decorative piece of environmental stuff. Again, I didn't create this from nothing, but I, I made it work. It took me a whole day to design it and work it out and put it together. Can you imagine my grief and regret if, if I got to the end of this project and it didn't work properly? I've just wasted a whole day and it doesn't work. It would probably make me angry. Many of us have children, don't we? We invest vast amounts of hours into our children, our lives. Can you imagine our regret or or disappointment if if our children got to a point in their lives where where they chose to forget everything everything that we had taught them about how to live a, a good and healthy life? They forgot to, forgot to brush their teeth. They stopped brushing their teeth. They, they started having relationships with whoever they choose. They ate unhealthy food like McDonald's all the time. They, they drank too much alcohol and to a point where it was affecting their health and their relationships. This, this kind of thing would grieve us to our heart. Wouldn't it? God's grief and regret got to a point where he regretted making mankind. This passage gives us a a window into the, the grieved heart of our creator. God's sorrow is what has become of his perfect creation. I wonder if we spend, and I know for myself I don't, I wonder if we spend enough time thinking about how our sin grieves our Creator. How our sin grieves Him to the point where He regrets making mankind. Because of this spread of wickedness, God resolves that it would be better to wipe mankind from the face of the earth. The question might be raised in our, in our minds of how could God do this? How could, how could God do that? How could God destroy the very creation that he, that he made as well as the birds and the animals? 
If God knows everything, why didn't he just wipe out those who were responsible? Just eliminate the ones at fault. Just hold your horses because God is not the one who is on trial here. God is not the one who is at fault here. From the beginning of the the book of Genesis up until this chapter, God has been the one, and I'm not saying that, that the flood was anything wrong on God's part, but from the beginning of Genesis, God was the one who had not done anything wrong. God created the earth and everything in it and he said it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And when God says that something is good and very good, believe me that it is as far from bad as east is from the west. The one that is at fault is mankind. We are the ones that reject God. We are the ones that decide to choose things that we determine are good. We are the ones that think evil all the time. God was not wrong in doing this, in creating the, in causing the flood. And besides, it's God who sets the boundaries for human life, as we see in verse 3. God as creator has the right to be God as judge, whether we acknowledge this or not. God cannot leave sin unpunished. He cannot leave wickedness unpunished. God is the giver of life and he is also the taker of life too. Can the created one question the creator? Because of the sin and wickedness of mankind, not only did God resolve to wipe out mankind, but also the birds and the animals, all creeping things and birds of the heaven. For I am sorry that I have made them. See how sin corrupts not just us, but the creation as well. And I wonder what God thinks when he looks down on on our the state of the earth at the moment. I wonder if he's grieved to the heart at the wickedness of mankind. It's a pretty grave situation that we find ourselves here in, don't we? But there is a glimmer of hope. There are fewer buts bigger than than this one in the Bible. B-U-T-S, not double T. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. God is saying everything is bad, everything is bad, and it grieves him to the heart. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. As we'll see next week through the the story of the flood and the destruction of the earth, God saves mankind through Noah and his family. 
He's somewhat of a, a precursor of a saviour. But do you see God's grace here again? Even in the face of rampant wickedness, even in the face of of constant evil, God is able to extend grace to Noah and his family. In verse 9, Noah is described as a, a blameless and righteous man. But in the process of the chapter... He finds favour in the eyes of the Lord first. Hebrews 11 says that by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Through faith, Noah saved mankind. He was a man favoured by God in the surrounding evil and wickedness. But he was just a precursor, as I said, to to what was to come. He was a man favoured by God. When we look at Jesus, we see that he is more than just a man favoured by God. I love these verses in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This but here is bigger than the one in Genesis chapter 6. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in that while we were constantly thinking evil all the time, Christ died for us. You see, it's possible to find favour in the eyes of the Lord just like Noah. Not through our own doing or our own works or anything like that, but only through Jesus Christ. Only through his perfect sacrifice, which we come around the table to celebrate in just a moment, can we earn this favour, can we find this favour. We cannot earn God's favour of our own accord. Noah found favour through faith and obedience. And we can also find favour through faith and obedience in Jesus Christ. The first question that I'll leave you with this morning is, have you found favour in the eyes of the Lord? Are you assured of this? Having favour in the eyes of the Lord means knowing that your sins are forgiven knowing that your evilness and wickedness is blotted out. Only those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can find favour in the eyes of the Lord. 
My second question is, how should we, as people of favour, live in the face of this world? Let me reword it. How do we continue to live as people of favour in this world? We've got to live as people of favour, folks. We've got to be mindful of our own sin and, and wickedness, but also be, be reminded of, that we do have favour in the eyes of the Lord. That through Jesus Christ we have this favour. Through Jesus Christ we have forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus Christ we have life eternal. Through Jesus Christ we have joy everlasting. And we also need to remember that having God's favour means being able to, to share that with others as well. Not just being reminded of it during Sunday morning services, but, but being reminded of it during the week. Having God's favour is the best thing that has ever happened to me. Having God's favour is, is what I want to tell you about. Are you with me? It is possible to have favour in the eyes of the Lord because of Jesus Christ. We're going to come around this communion table and, and be reminded of, of the fact that, that we can have favour in the eyes of the Lord through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If the stewards would come forward for me, that would be great. Favour through the, the breaking of the bread, his body broken for us. Favour through the shedding of his blood, which was spilt to wash us clean of our sins. And favour through his resurrection, which brings us life eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for the reminder of, from Genesis chapter 6 that, that our hearts are only, but by the grace of God, we are only evil and wicked all the time. Lord, I thank you for the reminder that, that even in the face of, of rampant wickedness, you can work in a person's life, in, in our lives, and that we can find favour in your eyes. Lord, as we come around this communion table and, and profess that it is only in Jesus Christ that we can have this favour, we pray your blessing over this time. We ask that you would forgive us of our sins that you would remind us of the, the wonderful blessing that it is to have favour in your eyes and, and that we would go from this place filled with joy, filled with wonder at a God who would save us while we were still sinners.
Lord, may your grace and your mercy be, be ever evident to us. Never more at a time like this. Lord, I pray that you would, would continue to look with favour upon us, that we would follow you in faith and obedience, trusting you with all things, that we would be continually telling others about the fact that they can have favour in your eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the emblems are passed around, please take the bread in your own time, but um, we will hold the cup and drink together as a sign of unity.